bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a very special guest. We have Karen Che with us, who is the founder and CEO of International Bridges to Justice. Karen is an international human rights attorney and has many stories to share with us today. She's also an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister and has an interesting take on international human rights, and justice. Welcome to the show, Karen. Welcome. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm so glad to It's great to, to be you. here. Now, you are in Geneva, Switzerland today, is that correct? I am in Geneva, Switzerland. A nice, neutral place on the planet, and that's where you live, right? I live here. It's actually, yes, neutral and beautiful. I don't know if it's really that neutral, but it claims to be. <laughs> well, that'll be an interesting twist to the conversation. So, uh, Karen, you and I had the opportunity to meet uh, last year at a an international global leadership forum for women, the Women's International Network in Barcelona. And uh, right. we were both uh, privileged to be doing some form of presentation there. And I was so touched and inspired by your story. I just knew that I Thank had you. to bring you to leading conversations so that we could share this with other people. And um, so let's start this morning by talking a little bit about International Bridges to Justice. Tell us essentially, sum up for our listeners, what IBJ is about. Okay, well, I could just maybe even, I think it's sort of encapsulated in my experience of starting, you know, just in, even in 1994, of walking into a Cambodian prison and there seeing a 12-year-old boy who had been tortured and was denied access to counsel. And what was interesting to me as I looked into the eyes of this 12-year-old boy is that I realized exactly at that point that, you know, for all the hundreds of letters that myself and my friends and colleagues had written, um, even, you know, from 20 years before, for all the political prisoners that we would never have written a letter for this 12-year-old boy because he wasn't an important political prisoner who had done anything for anyone. In fact, he was just a 12-year-old boy who had stolen a bicycle. And I realized that the irony of the situation is, was that although the Cambodian government was not excited about, you know, anyone helping or supporting or going into political prisoners, they were completely doors open if anyone wanted to help, you know, a 12-year-old boy who had stolen a bicycle. And I realized that um, this boy was really just the victim of a broken-down legal system and that it was much more about lack of resources than it was about political will. And what I recognized in this 12-year-old boy is that it wasn't only him and it wasn't only the prisoners like him in Cambodia, but that there were literally hundreds of thousands of people in the world who were in the exact same situation, meaning today um, torture continues 
mostly as the cheapest form of investigation. Mo- the majority of people who are tortured in this world today aren't tortured necessarily for political reasons, although there are many egregious cases in that area as well. But many are simply tortured because of the fact that um, there's, no, there's no system. The police are, are using torture as a way of investigation, whereas although of the 113 developing countries named as being t- countries that tortured, um, there's 113, 93 of these countries actually have laws on the books that say you have a right to a lawyer, a right not to be tortured. And the real question, the real issue is that these laws are not being implemented. So International Bridges of Justice focuses on helping um, these countries implement their own domestic laws consistent with human rights. So our approach really is not to work against governments or um, you know, or, or even necessarily for policy changes. We're looking at laws that are on the books, and like I said, 93 of the 113 countries that torture actually have passed laws that say people have a right not to be tortured and people have a right to attorney. We work with these countries and try and help them implement their own domestic laws consistent with human rights so that um, it's not just, you know, one or two cases that, that attorneys work on that will make a difference, but what we're really looking at is also infrastructure change societal change, shifts in consciousness, equilibrium change, so that it will not only be for one or two people or even just this generation, but generations and generations to come. Right. Well, that's a tall order, Karen. And I'm curious about kind of how you got to that point, because you were trained as an attorney. You were trained in the U.S., correct? Yes, I was. I went to UCLA for law school. And then you... It's a plug for my alma mater. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, And then you worked as a public defender in the Mm -hmm. San Francisco um, attorney, uh, district attorney's office. San Francisco public defender's office, right? Public defender's office, thank you. And um, how long were you in San Francisco? I was actually only there for about three years. Mm -hmm. And at the sort of somewhere in the middle or towards the end of those three years... It was really strange, but someone, and I'm not sure if they were, you know, trying to do me a favor or not do me a favor, but someone placed, someone sort of out of the blue uh, anonymously placed an ad on my seat, on my desk seat at work. And it was an organization that was looking for three lawyers to go abroad to move to Cambodia and train the first set of public defenders in the country. Oh, wow. And so I was, you know, there for three years, and I was just about, you know, three years to your career is kind of when you think you're actually finally learning something. Well, now that's interesting. So what, someone who, whoever put that there in your seat to bring it to your attention must mm-hmm. have seen in you a real keen interest in what was happening in the world. Um, what, what appealed to you about this? Well, it was sort of interesting for me because um, I graduated from college in 1986, and at that point, I actually had a very strong sense that in order to change the world or bring justice to the world or, you know, move forward in, in sort of joy without as much suffering as we had, that it was really a dual process. It was structural change that we needed, but it was also about our spirituality and how we related to other people. And, and I saw a really important role for shifts in consciousness and the way that we um, sort of 
moved through transformative love. And so at that point when I graduated as an undergrad, I applied to both law school as well as divinity school. And they were two completely different things. And I couldn't decide because they both seemed like the answer, but they're both completely different things. And what I decided to do instead was to go on something that was called a Watson Fellowship, whereby I went abroad for one year and worked in some refugee camps. And I was in Cambodian refugee camps and Vietnamese and Laotian refugee camps. And that was back in 1986. And that, what I remember is that at the end of my year, I went to the top of a mountain and um, I actually recorded into a tape recorder. I was with a good friend of mine, and we said, listen, you know, we were, I don't remember how old we were. It must have been 22. And I said, um, listen, now we're going to go, we're going to go back, we're going to go to the real world. And I knew I was going to law school because I ended up deferring admission to law school for a year when I took this year and eventually went on the Watson Fellowship. Going to go back into this real world, going to go back into law. And I had a very strange feeling that maybe I would lose myself or lose my values or I wouldn't come back. So I committed into the tape recorder. I said, listen, and I'm going to come back because this is what I'm supposed to do. But anyway, I then went to law school. And and then after I went to law school, I became a public defender. And there's like six years later, seems like a very, very far distance. And, and actually... For young lawyers especially, there aren't that many opportunities to actually do the kind of work that I was interested in. So when this came across my desk, even though I was sort of then settled into my lifestyle in San Francisco, I thought, well, this must be a sign. Hmm. And then that's, that's, you know, that's the beginning of the rest of the story. Well, you know, it's um, interesting to me that you were willing to follow what was being put in front of you. You know, a lot of us get indicators or signs or opportunities to step out of, you know, the typical path or what other people think we should be doing, and we don't always follow it. What do you think was going on in you? Well, you know, I think think it was interesting because I also think that I was at a very interesting place in my life. Um, The reality of it is that I was absolutely terrified um, of moving to Cambodia. I'd never been to Cambodia before. I'd worked in Cambodian refugee camps, but I'd worked in Cambodian refugee camps in Thailand. And um, all the stories I heard from the refugees were absolutely terrifying. (laughs) So I got this call to go to Cambodia in 1994, and since I'd never been there and knew nothing of it, Except for the stories from refugees, um, I thought this this is uh, this is what I'm supposed to do, but I really, you know, I'm not really I don't I'm not I'm scared. But basically, I was scared. Plus, not only that, but you know, I had a, a settled life style. I had my friends. I was you know involved with someone, and I just that was my life. Um, but I, I think at a, at a much deeper level, and I think this is always true for myself and for everyone, that if you just really kind of stop and um, just listen to the silence of your own soul, you sort of know what you have to do. You sort of, even if it's not concrete, you sort of, there's something deep within you that calls to you and tells you this is what you're supposed to do. And I had a sense that even though I was scared and even though I didn't understand where all the pieces were going, that it was what 
I was supposed to do. I also had a sense that where I was, even though it was exciting, wasn't exactly the right place for me. And the reason I felt that way was because um, there are ways in which I loved being a public defender. And what we do right now, International Breaches of Justice, is to support and train public defenders. And we really believe that they are the key to ending torture as an investigative tool in the 21st century. And so they, they are the people to be supported. So I have a very, very strong public defender pool. And at the same time, for the position that I was in at that time, there was some part of me that felt that it was mismatched, that um, I was developing a set of competencies, and some of what I was becoming I liked, and some of what I was becoming I wasn't sure about. Very, very interesting. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It's the beginning of a very interesting story. Karen, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we're going to pick this up, and I'm going to hear more about how you actually had the courage to start this organization. We'll be back after this message. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations this morning. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Karen Che. Karen is the founder and CEO of International Bridges to Justice and a very powerful woman in her own right. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting Karen and spending some time with her in Barcelona last summer and was so amazed at the energy this woman has Probably um, Thank worth you, about, Cheryl. <laughs> probably worth about fifteen of most of us. And um, Karen, you you have 
harnessed this energy in you and have really directed it into this mission of international justice and helping countries to implement their own laws against torture and how they bring justice to prisoners, whether they are political prisoners with big names or simply um, the everyday person who has to endure prison within these different countries. So as you have begun to um, build the organization, the nonprofit organization, International Bridges to Justice, you have brought forth your experience as an attorney, as a public defender, and you have melded it and meshed it with an opportunity to engage people with power. Now, I know that you have been invited to uh, the World Economic Forum at Davos um, at least once, more than once, at least once. More than once, yes. More than once, yes. But once is good enough. (laughs) A great place to be. Great opportunity. So um, Davos is um, an event that occurs on an annual basis where leaders throughout the world, um, through from many different um, um, areas of industry um, and influence, come together. Mm-hmm. And it's called the World Economic Forum. Uh, my sense is that a whole lot more goes on there than simply conversation about economies around the world. Um, tell me why you think that you were given the opportunity to be there. I Well, one thing is that the World Economic Forum is um, very strong in wanting to include a number of voices in the conversation. So our voice really is that of both being an NGO as well as being a social entrepreneur. And um, I think it's just, it's just a part of wanting there to be a diversity of actors within the space so that it makes the, the conversation much more powerful and even the strategic direction of where the world is going becomes much more powerful when there are actors from all the different segments of society. So you saw this opportunity as a pretty big one to be included in that and to share the mission and the vision for the International Bridges to Justice organization. Why do you think it was important for you to be there? Well, one of the things that's always exciting is that the way that um, the movement is being built, meaning we're really looking to end torture as an investigative tool in the 21st century, which we believe is absolutely possible if the world decides to be committed to it. I mean, it's no different than um, the 19th century saying we're going to end slavery or the 20th century saying we're going to end apartheid. It's about people initially believing that it's impossible and then a group of people saying, no, it's not, that you know, we are the agents of history. We create history. We, we make things happen. And it's about people believing. If people believe first, anything can happen as we create it into a reality. And so part of the um, challenge for us is both things, working with defenders, judiciaries, police officers, judges, lawyers, defenders, on an individual country basis, having us, you know, we, we always see that although it's, it's a legal training and legal conferences, that law is really just a tool. Law is just, you know, what we use. In fact, in reality, it's about empowerment. It's about leadership. It's coming into our voice in that way. 
this is a long way to the World Economic Forum, but it's getting there. So, so, so the, the point is that on a, um, you know, much more on an everyday basis, our work involves the empowerment, the working, the strengthening of really courageous defenders throughout the world who are looking for the international support to make it happen. And we see that what we do is both bottom-up and top-down that to really create a movement, we need every citizen throughout the world to stand up and say, what's my role? How do we do this? So part of what's very exciting about the World Economic Forum is that everyone's there. We've got decision makers. We've got heads of states who are willing to talk to us who say, okay, what's happening in my country? And, and, and linking us up with you know, the Ministry of Justice in their country or different people in foreign affairs who might be able to support us. We've got companies. We've got technology companies who say, listen, is there something that we can help you with? Do you need, you know, what do you need for this part? There's, um, there's consultancy firms there who are able to help with some of the strategic or consult, you know, consultative thinking. There's advertising firms. There's, there's really just a mesh of people plus members of the civil society who are also maybe working on the same issues from a different angle. So I think what's wonderful about being there is that a lot of people are there at the exact same time. And there's an energy that can be created when people come together around vision or when people who are from diverse places thinking about other things come together and you're just even sitting down informally at a dinner or having a cup of tea and realizing, you know, we may not normally be sitting next to each other, but we're sitting next to each other now. So what kind of conversations can we have about where we have common ground? And the area that I work in, I would say, unfortunately, sometimes sounds like a topic that's really scary to people, right? Ensuring due process rights, ending torture, you know, stopping police abuse. It sounds really scary and kind of human rights abusey, and you, you might not want to talk about it. And yet at the same time, when you're able to sit down side by side with people, you see that most people in the world really care about it. And most people really want to see what they can do, what, what thing they can bring to the table. And it's different things for different people. And it's always been very exciting for me at the World Economic Forum to be able to have conversations with people and then really follow up where people have said, okay, I can commit this, and, and how can I support you in the movement? And, and sometimes it's actual resources. Sometimes it's strategic thinking. And sometimes it's just you know, sort of step-by-step peace building um, of what will happen in the future. And, you know, this is... Um how the world really is going to change is person to person saying how can we collaborate and how can we make a difference and and, and not simply depend on governments to make change so you know it's like governments don't always change from the inside very often they change from external pressures or from um, someone going to them, going to the government officials and saying, here's a different way. Have you looked at it this way? And uh, I can imagine the conversations you had in Davos were um, enlightening as well as inspirational. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think what's actually inspirational is that you will find more times than not that people really care and that they really are concerned about working on these issues. And, and actually, I think we sort of need to even shift our paradigm, because one thing that's really easy for us as an international community is to sit down and point fingers at governments and say, you should be doing X, Y, and Z. 
The reality of it is that most governments have already signed on to these conventions. So just having people sit there and say, hey, you've got to do this, isn't really that helpful in terms of external pressure. Well, it's somewhat helpful. I won't say it's not really that helpful. It's somewhat helpful. But what they really want and what can be really helpful is if we come together as a world community and say, okay, what are our mutual goals? And let's just get down to business. What can we do to actually make it happen? You know, what's needed? What's, what are sort of like the bricks and mortar pieces? And then I see that that human rights in this day and age is different than what human rights was 25 years ago. When we, you know, 25 years ago, we we're looking at closed, you know, closed communist systems, um, dictatorships, authoritarian governments. I mean, it was a much, much different world. In those worlds, in those days, it's only about advocacy, perhaps. Maybe it's about letter writing, and maybe those are the only levers that you have. Today's a different world. We have, you know, allegedly all these new democracies, and they are democracies, but we have to ask ourselves, like, how much of the dream is actually realized? And the dream is realized through the implementation of the laws. And not that much gets done if you just point fingers at people. Some might get done, but I'd say a bigger, a stronger um, pool would be if we actually sat down and said, okay, how can we help you? And that's really what International Bridges to Justice focuses on doing. Not, not necessarily finger pointing, but saying, okay, here are some of the positive areas that you've committed to. How can we help you? How can we support you? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really believe that the world conversation needs to shift in that way, that it was much more of a... Um, you know, we're going to ride in on a nice horse and tell you what you're doing wrong. And I don't really think that's the attitude we need to have anymore. I think we need to have an attitude of, of moving forward together and saying, where is there a creative partnership that's valuable to us? Because these are our mutual interests and our mutual hopes. And, and that's one thing which I think is very positive about the World Economic Forum, that it doesn't bring in politics. It doesn't bring in, you know, judgments. It's saying, okay, we are all coming together to improve the state of the world. How are we going to make this happen? And with that, there is such an openness to the attitude that many things are possible. And I think that's what it's all about. It's about creating endless possibilities, imagining them, and then turning them into concrete realities. You know, it makes me wonder about um, this sense that people get sometimes when they feel overwhelmed by the idea that these issues are so big. Right. Um, You know, what what can I do as an individual person to affect this? The issues are so big that, you know, Karen has to go to Davos to get something done. Um, What can I do? And so what do you say to people? Well, my sense really is that... um, we just kind of get over the overwhelm. <laughs> because, get over um, it. <laughs> you just get over it. Just get over it because absolutely there's something that we can do. Absolutely there's something that every single person in the world can do. And, and you know, I'm always reminded, I think I, I've told you this story before, but I'm always reminded of Vishnu, who's like my favorite hero in the entire world. And, you know, he was a four-year-old boy born in a Cambodian prison. And he was one who, um, you know, he was born without any material goods at all, right? No status, no power. He's a little baby who's born in a prison. The interesting thing, though, is, um, so by the time I met him, he was four years old. And the guards, because they knew him from when he was a baby, 
loved him, and they would allow him in and out of the prison bars. But what he'd have to do is he'd have to go up the first, you know, as the first rung and the second and the third. He'd slip his body through and then really slowly move his head and then, you know, go back down, three, two, one. Now, what he would do every day is he would, like, grab my pinky. This is in Condal Prison. And he would want me to take him to, like, 156 prisoners. And he would want me to lift him up so he could stick his little pinky through. Or some of them were in dark cells. And he'd want, you know, they, have like a little, they were, like, on the dirt floors. And there's this little tiny opening where he... Everyone would have to lay down, actually lay down on the ground so that they could put their face on the ground and reach through the little, it was like a little cutout hole in order to reach for his little finger. Now, the interesting thing is that for most of these people, like he was their greatest joy, their greatest sunshine, they waited for him. He brought them so much hope and so much joy. And I always, and he, four years old, took this responsibility very strongly. You know, he'd come out and wanted to grab my pinky and let's go. And I always thought, listen, here's a four-year-old boy born with no material comfort, with probably the least power of almost anyone in the world. And yet he probably said, I'm one, I'm only one, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So let me do the one thing I can do. And I think that is exactly the attitude that all of us have to have. We can't do everything, but we are one. And we can't do something, so we've got to do the one thing that we can't do. And together, it's like the ripple effect, right? One day, all these ripples come together, and they just form that powerful wave that moves us through history. What a beautiful story that really speaks to the essence of being a human being, and that is our need for connection. Karen, we're going to take a break, and um, when we come back, we're going to hear more about this amazing journey that you have traveled. We'll be right back. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1 888 A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets. 
Sports with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Karen Chat this morning, founder and CEO of International Bridges to Justice. So, Karen, you've been sharing with us how IBJ, International Bridges to Justice, supports um, the concept of justice for prisoners around the world um, to help countries implement their own policies, their own laws on non-torture and providing justice to prisoners. Right. You know, the U.S. has had um, its own challenges with this issue, and especially yes. in the last few years. Yes. Um, the the oh, whole concept of innocent till proven guilty, right to counsel and defense, um, seems to suddenly have disappeared. And it was um, under the pretext of international, or excuse me, national security for the U.S. Uh, after 9/11 occurred. Um, you know, Guantanamo prison was created in response to that by um, the U.S. government, and the whole concept of right to counsel seemed to have disappeared. Um, can you talk a little bit about? You know, how did that happen in the U.S. where everybody believes they have a right to be represented by counsel, um, where we just assumed people are innocent till proven guilty, and these rights seem to have not mattered? It was like they just they weren't relevant for some, for, in some way for this situation. How did that happen in the U.S.? Oh, that's probably the million-dollar question. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't know. I can't say how it happened in the U.S. I do think that it's, um, it's more symptomatic of the way that we were um, sort of dis- disconnecting ourselves mm-hmm. from each other, from the world, mm-hmm. and kind of going down the slippery slope of seeing us versus the other, and these sort of artificial divides about humanity instead of being able to recognize our um, interconnectedness and our interconnected humanity. And it's not just about you or me, but that injustice everywhere ends up coming back and affecting us. So you can't just take away some rights and feel like it's not, doesn't actually affect the entire world or come back in some ways to affect justice in your own homeland and places. Um, sort of ironically, many people thought that this sort of backwards movement from the United States would affect the work of International Bridges of Justice so that we would then be like, oh, it's terrible, this is happening in the United States, so justice is going to take a halt everywhere. If the United States isn't doing its job in the right way, then, then this is going to be problematic. And in fact, it was a very strange thing, but in a very strange way, it almost helped us, and, and I'll tell you why. Number one, Many countries don't want people coming in telling them, your system's all messed up. Let me tell you how to do it. I'm American. So the fact that 
we had made some mistakes, made it a much easier conversation of, okay, we all are in a place where we have to stay vigilant and we have to work hard towards implementing due process rights. So how do we all do this together as a world community? Um, the second thing is that we, we sort of reopened the discussion around the issue of torture. And I think that for, for many people, for instance, in America, the whole torture issue was just something very, very far away. Mm-hmm. And you know, people, were being, people are tortured every day in countries throughout the world. It's absolutely awful. I mean, you know, in some countries where we work, like India, which is an absolutely beautiful country and has phenomenal things about it, um, incredibly developed in, in many, many ways, still four people every day are tortured to death an estimated four people a day. And so, you know, torture continues as a daily reality for people throughout the world, and yet it was sort of something that we never thought about because that's over there and here we are over here. And so I think one of the things that was positive about the whole thing, and this is, of course, there's nothing positive about it, but if there could be anything, it would be that it brought the international conversation back to really looking at some of these issues and the ways that it affects us as a world community. Well, you know, um, there is now a new president in the United right. States, President Hooray. Obama. Yeah, President <laughs> Barack Obama. Yes. yes. I'm sure yes. you're very positive about this, um, yes. as am I. And, you know, the it's been fascinating to watch the whole shift in perspective of the people in the U.S., the whole shift in the energy um, it's fascinating, and, and it's almost as if um, there is permission to um, speak one's voice again. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been looking at and what we've been seeing is that um, issues that maybe had become silenced mm-hmm. under the context of the previous administration, the Bush administration, um, suddenly are being voiced again. And, you know, I, I have to say that, you know, it's, it would be very easy to point the finger at the Bush administration and say they caused this. And, you know, that would not be then us all taking responsibility for, yes, well, it, they caused it and we slipped into our fear of silence. And so um, it's almost as if the Obama administration has opened the door again and said, well, wait a minute, you know, it's your right to speak up. Use your right. And so now we, as the people, have a responsibility to step into our responsibility, right, to step into um, living the doctrine of the um, Constitution and not just complaining about what's not happening. And what is your sense, you know, Obama has said that, he will move to close Guantanamo. What is your sense about um, how this is going to play out in the international community? Um, you know, how is that going to uh, affect the perception of the U.S. around the world? I think that the perception of the U.S. around the world has already um, improved, even in <laughs> just you know with Obama coming in to the presidency. And um, I think, you know, you can, you can feel it energetically everywhere, whereas, you know, I'm living in Europe, and, and I, have, I know people who say, you know, I wasn't sure before. I didn't want to tell everyone that I was American, but now I'm very proud and very happy about it. Yeah. One thing that's really exciting is I think that, that you're right. We can't just blame it on prior administrations and say, oh, they did this to us. It's, but 
I think what was positive is that Obama, again, reminded us that we can make a difference, that each and every individual makes a difference, and that we have that choice, and, and there's agency. You know, and we, have to, we have to take responsibility for it. So what I see is, you know, we, we are going to move towards the closing of Guantanamo, and what's going to be fantastic is the way that an international bridge of justice is, is really going to be working on the forefront of this is really looking at ways of building the world community, of building a worldwide movement for ending torture as an investigative tool in the 21st century. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely possible. So it's something that we should be doing. I think this is a very important step in the process as well. Yeah. You know, I, I really believe that um, this president is not only inspiring confidence, but inspiring courage. Yes. And courage to speak and courage to stand up uh, for what is right. And, you know, this is the core of this country's values. Mm-hmm. And um, and I believe the world looks to this country for that. And so for the last few years, having watched the U.S. essentially step away from its core values, um, truly I saw an effect in countries mm-hmm. around the world. I saw how we actually almost have a responsibility to continue to stand up in order for other countries, in order for people in other countries to have courage to stand up also. Does that make sense? Yeah, I yes. I think when any of us stand up, when all of us stand up, we give courage to each other. Mm-hmm. That that we're always saying, you know, what's happening here and, and, and who's standing up and, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere that we do it has a sort of a ripple effect throughout the world. Throughout the world. So we should do it all the time. Well, that's hard. <laughs> you know, that that's mm-hmm. actually that's very true. challenging. And um, how do you keep from getting tired? How do I keep from being tired? Um, I don't know that I do. I probably am tired sometimes. And um, I also believe that, well, I guess in relationship to International Bridges of Justice, um, you know, we've had made some phenomenal strides, and at the same time, there have always been setbacks and obstacles, um, and that's been true from the beginning. And I believe that whenever you're, um, whenever you're working towards something that's really worth achieving, and if you're really doing something that's cutting edge or, or going to make an impact in history, it's going to be, you know, harder than if you were just going with the flow making an incremental change, um, doing a small thing or two. And, and we're not about doing a small thing or two. We have a pretty big vision. I mean, ending torture in the 21st century is an investigative tool. That's a pretty big vision. Pretty big and there's a lot of countries that we're going towards. And it's a lot of work. And at the same time, although I see it as being a sort of, we could look at it and it could look like a massive problem and a massive issue, and it probably is. And at the same time, um, we sort of just break it down yeah. into very doable steps. Yeah, yeah. And then it looks pretty doable, you know, yeah, pretty doable. doable. I would say that at my most, cha- that the most challenging points in my life where I was working towards something where I thought, oh, my gosh, it is so hard. 
it is absolutely hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. What I've done, which, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we should all do this. <laughs> I've only done this once in a while, is that I've found something else to focus on at the same time that I'm doing the thing that I'm doing. Does that make any sense? Yes, yeah, yeah. So divert Meaning, your attention away from the well, Yes, although, although you have to continue because sometimes See. in terms of your greater goal, you just have to keep going. You have to keep going if you want to make progress. Yeah. And yet sometimes it's pretty overwhelming yeah. and, and it looks pretty devastating and it looks like, you know, all the chips are against you. And so, for example... I lived in Cambodia from 1994 to 1997, and there was a period that was extremely difficult. And um, I, what I did during that time was I kept doing the work that I was doing on a daily basis, and I was um, also doing Taekwondo. And I realized that I became completely obsessed with Taekwondo during the most mm-hmm. difficult periods of my work. Mm-hmm. And I, I was at one point going at 5 p.m. every day for like an evening mm-hmm. workout. And then I realized that I was going for a lunch workout at 12 and 5. And then I realized I was going for a 5.30 a.m. and a 12 and a 5 p.m., you know, all at the same time doing the work that I had to do. But there's something in you sometimes when it gets really difficult where you just have to um, keep doing the work and focus on and also have another outlet for joy, something else where you can see improvement or something that's moving forward that helps sustain it. And now, you know, I'm sure that there are people in the world who would say, no, you're not supposed to do that. (laughs) You're supposed to focus on what you're supposed to focus on. But there really are times where where you just have to get through. Yeah. And you get through whatever way you get through. And sometimes that means having a couple of other things that you can work on or focus on to balance whatever the big challenge is. Right. Well, International Bridges to Justice has created several programs, and one which I want to talk about when we come back from break, um, and provides tools for um, lawmakers, justice makers around the world called Justice Makers. Justice Makers, right. So um, let's take a break, and we'll be back shortly. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Karen Chess this morning, and she's the founder and CEO of International Bridges to Justice, an international human rights attorney. And um, Karen, the organization, IBJ, International Bridges to Justice, has many programs, and you have recently launched an online criminal defense community called Justice Makers. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, we actually have been really excited about Justice Makers because sort of our our sense was that there's justice makers throughout the world who are interested in implementing projects in their own local areas. And so it actually is a very simple sort of contest and online connection whereby the first part of it was we offered um, $5,000 to a justice maker in their own local community to implement justice. And recently we had... Um, the people who actually were recipients of the fellowship were there was a pro, there's a justice maker from the Congo, which is legal aid to prevent women's abuse, one from Swaziland, justice in customary courts, one in Brazil, teaching human rights, one in the Philippines, a paralegal coordinator project, one in Pakistan, juvenile justice, um, Nigeria, access to justice through info technology, Nepal, and also Kenya. And so part of what's really exciting about it for us is that um, justice makers have come out from all corners of the world. Um, literally, we've had thousands of people come onto the site and sign on as partners, sign on as justice makers, and also just sign on as individuals. And it's been amazing to see we've had people from Pakistan talking to defenders in Uganda saying, how can we support you? It's great the work you're doing. And this is what we realize often, that people are doing very courageous work. Mm-hmm. And they want to reach out to each other, and they need for other people to reach out to them as well. And they need to support each other and be supported by an international community. So what we're really hoping for is that this becomes a much more, um, even um, more robust online community where there's conversations online, where defenders from all over the world are talking to each other, and also a place where we can develop accreditation programs, training programs, and continue with the Justice Makers fellowships and competitions so that it really begins to seed initiatives and spark hope throughout the world. So when you are are looking for, um, when you're doing fundraising and looking Mm -hmm. for donations for International Bridges to Justice, this is one of the programs you support with that as you are providing not only content and best practices online, but you are actually um, providing seed grants to others. Yes, we are. I mean, it's it's really phenomenal because we had 55 finalists, and I'm telling you, it was, it's really a heart-wrenching process because every single one of these finalists from every single country deserved, you know, $5,000 of seed money because the projects that they are going to implement are absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And so um, really our hope is that all these projects become funded and that we're able to really support the energy and the work of these justice makers throughout the world. And it's really, you know, it's, um, it's not even that it's, it's, it's the money, but it's also the support. But, of course, you can't do a lot of cases without the money, so we, we always need that as well, and, and we're 
hoping that more and more of the international community, even if it's a little bit, so if our listeners are on and they want to go on to www.ibj.org, um, you know, if everyone gives a little bit of money, it makes a huge difference. Mm. And justice makers are, are really showing us that with not very much, they're able to make clear contributions to people who are being abused within their societies by providing early access to counsel. Well, you know, I, I am so inspired by you, Karen, by the work you're doing, by your energy, by, um, you know, your belief that everybody has a right to a voice, everybody has a right to be heard. And, um, you know, the I'm curious, and we only have a couple minutes left, but I'm curious about your being in Geneva. Is that related to anything purposeful in terms of, you know, Geneva is, is known around the world as neutral ground. Um, right, right. Is, is, is this related? Is this why you're there? Well, you know, it's really interesting because what I've realized more and more is that um, the world does love Geneva. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it because there's great skiing and fantastic <laughs> hiking. Um, and the world loves Geneva for other reasons rather than the, other than the fact that it's great skiing and great hiking and phenomenal mountains. And, you know, what we found is, well, first of all, just geographically, it's really convenient because we're smack in the middle. So we can talk to people from Asia. We can talk to people from America. We can talk to people from Africa. I mean, we can sort of almost fit that all into our day because of the time zones. And it's so geographically it's easy to travel places. But also everyone comes to Geneva. The U.N. is here. Yeah. There's international meetings all the time. And it is perceived to be a neutral place where um, there's not necessarily different kinds of self-interest involved. And I think that especially at this point, um, Switzerland is really looking towards the whole issue of soft governance. And, you know, it's not about fighting. It's not necessarily about telling people they're doing the wrong thing. But, you know, how do we walk collaboratively together in this journey so that we can build a world community and support each other in mutual goals? And so for that reason, International Bridges Justice is is really looking to set up an even stronger base in Geneva. We actually were in a smaller office even just a month ago. We've moved into a bigger office in Geneva, and we're having our first gala event in Switzerland in six months. That's great, Karen, and that's a great way to end. And I so appreciate you being here today, and our uh, listeners can find out more about International Bridges to Justice by going to ibj.org and learning more about Karen Che and how she is changing the world one person at a time. Karen, thanks again, and um, I I look forward to more conversations with you. And remember, everybody, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.